And now it's time for Dave's Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle Tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. But he understands its place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. So come along and take a listen to Dave's thoughts about the Walt Disney World Resorts and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, I haven't had a podcast in a little bit now, and I thought it was time to do a double podcast again. And this one is specifically about my magic. I've been thinking a lot about the concept and what Disney is doing, and been reading a lot about it recently, too. And I'm a little bit, um, I guess the word is perplexed, about what it is, what it does, and why Disney is doing it, frankly. So I thought I'd delve into that topic a little bit and uh, talk about my magic in some greater detail and kind of give my perspective on what I think think they're doing and what I think they're doing with it. You see, one of the things I was kind of thinking about that kind of got me started about this was, you know, you've got these older buses in the fleet and you've got some monorails that they can't even run uh, throughout the day. They have to run them kind of sporadically only at peak times because there are problems with them. They're an older, older uh, technology. And they keep talking about how they can't add, you know, monorail lines because it's too expensive to other locations. And yet they're willing to spend around a billion dollars on a technology that doesn't have any uh, perceptible benefit directly anyway. And it's just kind of an oddity to me that, you know, you don't spend it on infrastructure, but you do spend it on some technology that really is, is kind of uh, confusing a little bit to, the, to sort of an outside person. So I wanted to take some time and kind of think about what my magic is and sort of what it does. So first off, let's talk about what my magic is. To provide that perspective, let me read to you an article that appeared in the New York Times. It's called At Disney Parks, A Bracelet Meant to Build Loyalty and Sales. It's by uh, Brooke Barnes. And it's from earlier this year, but here goes. Imagine Walt Disney World with no entry turnstiles, cash, passe. Visitors would wear rubber bracelets encoded with credit card information, snapping up corn dogs and Mickey Mouse ears with a tap of the wrist. Smartphone alerts would signal when it's time to ride Space Mountain without standing in line. Fantasyland? Hardly. It happens starting this spring. Disney in the coming months plans to begin introducing a vacation management system called My Magic Plus that will drastically change the way Walt Disney World visitors, some 30 million people a year, do just about everything. The initiative is part of a broader effort estimated by analysts to cost between $800 million to $1 billion to make visiting Disney parks less daunting and more amenable to modern consumer behavior. Disney is betting that the happier guests will spend more money. If we can enhance the experience, more people will spend more of their leisure time with us, said Thomas O. Staggs, chairman of Disney Parks and Resorts. The ambitious plan moves Disney deeper into the hotly debated terrain of personal data collection. Like most major companies, Disney wants to have as much information about its customers' preferences as it can get, so it can appeal to them more efficiently. The company already collects data to use in future sales campaigns, but parts of My Magic Plus will allow Disney for the first time to track guest behavior in minute detail. Did you buy a balloon? What attraction did you ride and when? 
Did you shake Goofy's hand but snub Snow White? If you fully use My Magic Plus, databases will be watching, allowing Disney to refine its offerings and customize its marketing messages. Disney is aware of the potential privacy concerns, especially regarding children. The plan, which comes, in the, uh, which comes as the federal government is trying to strengthen the online privacy protections, could be troublesome for a company that some consumers worry is already too controlling. But Disney has decided that My Magic Plus is essential. The company must aggressively weave new technology into its parks without damaging the sense of nostalgia on which the experience depends, or risk becoming irrelevant to future generations. Mr. Stagg said, From a business perspective, he added, My Magic Plus could be transformational. Aside from benefiting Disney's bottom line, the initiative could alter the global theme park business. Disney is not the first vacation company to use wristbands equipped with radio frequency identification, or RFID, chips. Great Wolf Resorts, an operator of 11 water parks in North America, has been using them since 2006. But Disney's global park operation, which is an estimated 121.4 million admissions a year and generates $12.9 billion in revenue, is so huge that it can greatly influence consumer behavior. When Disney makes a move, it moves the culture, said Steve Brown, chief operating officer for LowQ, a British company that provides line management and ticketing uh, systems for theme parks and zoos. Disney World guests currently plod through entrance turnstiles, redeeming paper tickets, and then decide what to ride. Food and merchandise are bought with with cash or credit cards. Disney hotel key cards can also be used to charge items. People race to FastPass kiosks, which dispense a limited number of free line-skipping tickets, but gridlock quickly sets in and most people wait and wait. In contrast, My Magic Plus will allow users of a new website and app called My Disney Experience to pre-select three fast passes before they leave home for rides or VIP seating for parades, fireworks, and character meet and greets. Orlando-bound guests can also pre-register for RFID bracelets. These so-called My Magic Bands will function as room keys, park tickets, fast pass, and credit cards. Magic Bands can also be encoded with all sorts of personal details, allowing for a more personalized interaction with Disney employees. Before the employee playing Cinderella could say hello only in general. Now, if parents opt in, hidden sensors will read My Magic Band data, providing information needed for a personalized greeting. Hi, Angie, the character might say without prompting. I understand it's your birthday. The data will also be used to make waiting areas for rides, scene ones in Disney parlance, less of a drag. A new Magic Kingdom ride called Under the Sea, for instance, features a robotic version of Scuttle, the seagull from The Little Mermaid, that will be able to chit-chat with the Magic Band wearers. We want to take the experience that are more passive and make them more as interactive as possible. Moving from, cool, look at that talking bird, to, wow, amazing, that bird is talking directly to me, said Bruce Vaughn, chief uh, creative executive for Walt Disney Imagineering. Guests will not be forced to use the My Magic Band system, and people who do try it will decide how much information to share. An online options menu, for instance, will offer various controls. Do you want park employees to know your name? Do you want Disney to send you special offers when you get home? What about during your stay? I may walk in and feel good about giving information about myself and my wife, but maybe we don't want to give too much about the children, Mr. Stagg said. Still, once using the My Magic... Even if selecting the most restrictive settings, Disney sensors will gather general information about how the visitor uses the park. Rumors about My Magic Plus have been circulating on Disney fan blogs for months and offer a window into the likely debate over the service. Although I know this type of technology uh, is making its way into every facet of life, it still makes me feel a bit creeped out, wrote Jane Townsley of StitchKingdom.com.
Uh, Pam Falcioni, another Stitch Kingdom user, had the opposite response. I think it sounds awesome, she wrote, adding, as far as Big Brother watching over us as we wander around the parks, anyone worried about real privacy wouldn't be wandering around a theme park full of security cameras. The logistical challenges involved in pulling this off are extensive. Disney has 60,000 employees here and must be retrained in using the technology. Already, already Disney has installed free Wi-Fi at Disney World, a 40-square-mile area. So smartphone users can access the My Disney Experience app more readily, and all the procedures must be communicated to Super Bowl-sized crowds daily. What happens if your My Magic Band is lost or stolen? Park employees will be trained to deactivate them so guests can use the My or the uh, guests can use the My Disney Experience app, a Disney spokeswoman said. As a safety precaution, Disney will also require guests to enter a PIN when using rest bands to make purchases of $50 or more. Vans themselves will contain no personal, personally identifiable information, Mr. Stagg said. Mr. Stagg said that Disney's board of uh, directors moved ahead with the technology upgrades in February 2011 only after identifying multiple ways in which the initiative could ex- uh, expand profits. If Disney can drive more value from the existing infrastructure by layering on technology, that's extremely powerful, said Mr. Brown of Low Q. They just can't compete by building new rides. It's already a theme park arms race out there. Disney expects My Magic Bands to turn into a big business in and of themselves. The company plans to introduce collectible sets of My Magic Band accessories and charms. Prodding guests to do more advanced planning, combined with the tracking of guests as they roam the parks, will help Disney manage its workforce more efficiently. More advanced planning will also help lock visitors in, uh, into Disney once they arrive in Orlando, discouraging people, for instance, from making impromptu visits to Universal's Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Some cosmetic changes to the parks are introduced in the initiative's costs. For instance, eventual, uh, eventually guests will no longer enter the parks through turnstiles. And step they, instead, they will tap their magic bands on a post. Mr. Staggs explained the research indicated that guests, particularly mothers with strollers, viewed the turnstiles as an unpleasant barrier. Small, subtle things can make a big difference, Mr. Staggs said. Now, of course, you realize this article was published earlier this year, so some of this stuff has already come to pass. There already are the turnstiles that have the uh, My Magic entrance on them, and some of the things are already happening. But it, I thought it was an interesting perspective on what's going on with the My Magic and how it's going to work and how it all kind of comes together. So now you have a kind of a sense of what My Magic is. I think that gives a nice, I thought that article was really nice because it gave uh, a lot of overview of how the uh, technology would work. The interesting thing is that, you know, there's, there's these, um, there's this, all this concept of what they're going to do with it, you know, and how they're going to use it. I mean, generally speaking, what you've got in the technology sense is that you've got a, an RFID chip that's embedded into, uh, into a uh, piece of plastic uh, it uses, utilizes multiple radio tags to transmit a unique identification code to receivers within the Walt Disney World theme parks. One of the radios is an active transmitter utilizing a small battery operating on a 2.4 gigahertz uh, band. And the second is an, uh, is an HF or high frequency radio frequency identification ID or an HF RFID. The, um, and that one does passive uh, transmissions. The passive one, now passive, of course, means that it doesn't actually transmit anything out. It just, uh, it just goes past the sensor, and the sensor realizes you're there. So you have to be in close proximity to the sensor. That's like at the, at the turnstile when you put the My Magic Band right up to the little Mickey thing, and it starts to swirl, and then it turns on. The passive RFID tag requires an external power source to trigger transmissions, and therefore it's necessary for you to be in close range. Of a receiver, the passive RFID tag is used when making purchases, entering your hotel room, or entering the theme park. 
The active hag has the ability to constantly transmit or act as a beacon and is used by receivers throughout the theme parks to track locations so Disney can collect foot traffic patterns and guest flow throughout the park. Tom Staggs, uh, chairman for Disney Parks and Resorts, has stated that the Mag- My Magic Band uses Bluetooth support for long-range tracking, but technical details still show an active RFID transmitter. The My Magic Band works uh, by looking up each individual users in the My Magic Plus system. When someone makes a reservation, everyone in their family is registered with the system and will be assigned a My Magic uh, number uh, or ID. The hotel charging privileges, theme park passes, or photo passes will be assigned to the unique identification number or, or, um, for their My Magic. No personal information resides in the band itself, so that's an important feature. The, uh, if it's lost, uh, the band uh, uh, will not have any information. Um, Disney has the capability of just transferring the ID associated with it to another My Magic Band and distributing a new one. So you don't have to worry about if you lose it or if you misplace it or you know someone picks it out of the trash, let's say. You don't have to worry about it having any personal information. It just has a, essentially a tag number on it that ties back to a database. Now, of course, the uh, My Magic Bands perform certain actions, like providing access to the theme park. The system works by, using, by the user placing the My Magic in the close range of the My Magic receiver, or X-Connect. Now, the X-Connect reads the uh, unique ID associated with the My Magic, as well as the action being requested and transmits this over Ethernet to the My Magic Plus server. The server looks up the user in the database and retrieves the user's profile information. This information is then compared to the action being requested to determine if it's sex- successful or not. So, for example, if someone wanted access to the theme park, the idea in the theme park entrance action is re- uh, requested at the server. If a valid theme park pass is found on the user's database uh, record, then the message is sent back to the gate that the user is granted access. So that's why when you go up to the, to the uh, kiosk and you put the My Magic on there, it swirls around for a second. It's going to the database and saying, hey, this user is request- requesting access. Is they- are they eligible for access? And then it sends back the trigger to light up the finger pad. You put your finger on the pad, and then it sends a request back to the server to say, oh, here's the finger that goes along with that. Is it okay? So the message is sent back, and the user is granted access with a blinking green light. Additionally, uh, information is transmitted back to the cast member at the gate as well, but it's never displayed publicly. You may have noticed the cast members, if you look when you're going in, or you pay attention as you're standing there, there's cast members standing behind there. Uh, the ones that are standing immediately behind the gate, they have a little um, iPhone or an iPod Touch, I'm not sure which it is, in their hands. And they're looking at that as they look to see if it's green to see what information comes back. So they're matching up who the, you know, what the person is and what the request was to what they see on the, on the gate. So if it turns green and they see an okay on their screen, they know it's okay. There's also cast members who are further back who are carrying iPads. And in those iPads, they have more detailed information about what's going on with the customers and how many people are coming through and what kind of information is there. So kind of interesting the way they put it all together and they have people there who can see information. Now, when just walking around the theme parks, the My Magic Band is still active in performing a beneficial job for Disney. The RFID receivers, um, and these are a model XBR1 for anyone who knows the technical details, are placed throughout the theme parks and used to read the ID of the My Magic Band as the guests wander by. Disney can utilize these receivers to perform a couple of key tasks. One is to count the number of people passing by a particular area. Another is to determine where traffic bottlenecks are in the parks. And the third is to track the paths of guests to to take them uh, from one area of the park to another. By tracking this data, Disney can determine where new walkways are needed and how to best route people during parades or fireworks. Again, Tom Tom Staggs, chairman of the Walt Disney Parks and Resorts, has stated that guests have the ability to opt out of this part of the My Magic Band program, but some features will also be unavailable to them. So by opting in, you get more. 
right? That's kind of the idea. The receivers are very similar in nature to the receivers found in the state of Florida being used for the SunPath system if you uh, go through the uh, toll booths on uh, Florida's roadways. And it's not so different than some of the other toll areas if you have a little like a sticker on your car or a little uh, uh, transponder on your car that you drive through a, an automatic toll booth and it just takes care of the toll for you. Same principle. Most people think that their SunPass transmitters in their car, cars are only being read when they go through a toll booth on the highway. In reality, SunPass transmitters are being used in many major cities within the state to, traffic, to track traffic patterns. The receivers contain multiple radios in a, in a single case with the ability to attach up to three antenna. Two network ports are available on the receiver for communication back to the MyMagic Plus systems. So, that ought to give you a little perspective on what MyMagic uh, is, uh, technically speaking, and kind of what it, what it, how it fits together with what Disney's plans are. Now, there's a lot of things that happen here about that I question about the cost of it. You know, if it if it costs a billion dollars to to put together, you know, why couldn't that money have been spent elsewhere? What else could they have done that would have been more uh, effective or maybe more efficient in terms of what you know, what kind of what kind of money they're spending and what they're doing? I mean, could they have spent it on infrastructure? Could they have could they have done anything else with it? Um, you know, I, I kind of wonder about that piece of it just a little bit. Disney makes about $400 million in operating profit a year. So if they're planning on spending a billion dollars on this technology, that's essentially two and a half years worth of operating profit that you're investing in something that you're expecting a return on that investment. I've never heard of a company spending that sort of money on an investment that really has no direct benefit. You know, you can't say that we're going to do this because we're going to make it back in five years. Maybe they expect to make it back in five years, but it does seem kind of strange to me that they would spend that kind of money on something that uh, they have no direct and correlatable um, uh, return on their investment. Now, you could say, well, yeah, they're, but they're planning on using it in other theme parks, but they've already announced that they don't plan on using this at Disneyland, at least in the near future, and they will consider potentially using it at um, Disneyland Paris or um, at Tokyo Disneyland or maybe Shanghai Disneyland, but they have no immediate plans to do that. So this is really for Walt Disney World and Walt Disney World only at this point, which kind of makes me wonder why they're spending that kind of money. Um, it just kind of, uh, it kind of makes me, you know, think about it a little bit. You know, what are they doing? What, what, uh, what does Disney have in mind about this? And I can't quite put my hand, hands around it. I mean, I imagine that they've got some sort of a partnership with a couple of different companies out there to provide this technology so that Disney is building it in partnership with somebody to, uh, to be able to use and sell to somewhere else. So there must be some other uh, things that they're tying together in some way. So obviously if they have iPads and iPhones and whatever, then they're dealing with Apple. So Apple's got some, uh, some stake in this investment. So maybe all the money didn't come out of Disney's budget. Maybe Apple's providing some of the materials at a lower cost in order to get some return on that investment for themselves as well. Uh, maybe they're involved with the technology. Whoever's installing the servers and doing the data analytics for them, you got to figure that they're getting some benefit from it as well and probably have some partnership in this. And interestingly, there's a company called Splunk that's a, a big data company. And uh, they manage a lot of big data. They pull in a lot of information and they, they're able to disseminate it and understand it and interpret it. And one of the kind of interesting and funny things I found about that was that Eric Swan is the CEO of uh, Splunk. And he used to be a... Um, former VP at Disney. So you got to figure, I would guess, that there's some relationship there and Splunk is probably involved with Disney in some way in this um, effort. There's no official word from Disney, but it certainly seems 
like it has all the uh, markings of potentially having some uh, some data analytics there. Why would Disney build all the data analytics themselves when they can use a company that's already doing it, right, and be able to uh, gather some information? So you got to figure that, that, that that's going on. There's also an interesting thing that occurred to me the other day. The um, credit issuers around the world, the, you know, the, the big banks, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover, all of those companies, they can't figure out what the technology is that they want to use yet. And they'd like to, you know, they dabble, they all dabble in mobile payments to some degree, and they've come up with ideas and they're all doing something. But nobody has set the bar really high at this point um, as far as here's the, the next mobile payment, even PayPal for that, for that matter. You know, they all have ideas on how it's going to work, and they all have different uh, concepts and approaches for what they're going to do. But none of them have really uh, set anything out there to say, oh, this is how the technology is going to work, and this is what's going to change the standard. And as far as I know, none of them own any patents on any technology that allows them to do it. And here's where Disney potentially has leapfrogged all of them. Disney owns several patents now that allow them to have a mobile payment device. In that My Magic Band, you have the RFID that ties back to a database that then has your information from your credit card or your bank stored there so you can actually charge right at the point of sale. Uh, and you have this mobile device, and Disney owns the patent on it. So now Disney controls that particular piece of technology. They could license it out to anyone or all of those companies to use if they want to. So Disney could potentially make a lot of money on that because they leapfrogged and got something better in the mobile payments area than anyone else has done to this point. So I, that occurred to me, and I was like, oh, right, okay. So they've got something that goes further than what anyone else has done at this point. So if they're in the business or interested in being in the business of essentially um, online, so if they're potentially in the business of having people uh, make charges and having some sort of mobile device for payments, well, they're kind of already there, and they own the patents on it. So I found that kind of interesting. Now, speaking of the patents, Disney owns two on this particular technology. The more relevant one to this experience uh, reads, it's an exemplary computer-implemented method which comprises receiving information from guests, determining a guest strategy based on the information received from the guest, and generating a schedule for the guest based on the guest strategy. The schedule for the guest visit may include attendance at one or more experience areas. An exemplary computer program comprises a guest experience manager. The guest experience manager includes a guest interface capable of receiving a communication from a guest computer, where the communication from the guest computer provides guest information. The exemplary guest experience manager also includes at least one business rule to determine the guest strategy based on at least in part of the guest information. The computer system also comprises a scheduling element in the communication with the guest experience manager. The exemplary scheduling element is capable of scheduling at least one experience based on the guest strategy. You know, that's kind of a broad, uh, a broad statement, and it's a little hard to kind of parse when you hear it. You go, what? So the description, I think, does it justice. One disadvantage at many of the theme parks and amusement parks is the long lines that guests face to enter the park, the attraction within the park, and when purchasing food at mealtimes. Long wait times for attractions in particular detract from the guest experience, not just from the time spent standing in line, but also causing the guests to rush from attraction to attraction to maximize the number of popular attractions without taking the time to notice or enjoy other offerings around the theme parks, such as music, live entertainment, restaurants, shops, and so forth. Additionally, guests that rarely frequent the park are typically unfamiliar with the layout of the park as well as the peak times for more popular rides. This can further decrease those, the guest enjoyment 
as they make the circuitous routes in order to try and wait, visit as many attractions as possible and may cause them to experience even longer lines by failing to visit the most popular attractions at off-peak hours. Different methods have been used to try and minimize the wait times in theme parks and amusement parks, including limiting ticket sales on a given day or preventing the overcrowding and allowing guests to purchase more expensive express tickets that allow the guests to use shorter express lines for popular attractions. These methods are limited and more prevent overcrowding in the theme park itself, but do not guarantee that they will have shorter wait times. Similarly, other methods to try and minimize the wait times in theme parks include allowing guests to appear at the attraction and reserve specific times in the future when they can return to the attraction to enter through an express line. This method is also limited in that it does not allow guests planning their trips to know ahead of time what attractions they will be able to visit on a given day and what the best route is through the theme park for those desired attractions. Moreover, such systems will typically not allow the guests to make multiple appointments manifested as flexible return windows at the same time. Thus, if only available appointment times for a popular attraction are late in the day, the guest must either make an appointment and forego the opportunity to make appointments at other attractions or risk missing the popular attractions entirely. Accordingly, there is a need for a method and a system that better manages the guest experience and wait times at theme parks, amusement parks, and resorts. So there you go. That's what Disney is planning on uh, doing with that. Now, they, that is the more relevant of the two patents that they own in this particular space. They do own other patents as well that are related to My Magic, and two of them are related to the wristband itself. One is the wearable bands with interchangeable RFID modules allowing user sizing and personalization, which is basically patenting the wristband itself. So interestingly, you know, as I look at the, the big picture of it, that puts them in a place where they kind of own the technology and then can license it to other people, right? They can do more things. And of course, Disney doesn't actually own the patents on this right now. Right now, it's in a patent pending mode. They're going through the review process at the uh, U.S. And patent and Trademark Office. I presume these will probably pass muster and become patents, and Disney has protected themselves accordingly. But, you know, for the, ma- for the most part, when you look at it, you go, wow, they still own this technology. This is theirs. And, uh, you know, they're going to um, they're going to move ahead with what they think is the right thing. Now, the other thing I find interesting is Disney owns literally tens of thousands of patents. And perhaps on future podcasts, I'll highlight a couple of those patents here and there because some of them are really interesting. But Disney is also trying to get patents outside of the theme parks. And I think that's relevant because it kind of helps understand why Disney would spend all this money on development of My Magic, realizing that it's not just about the theme park experience. It's much more than that. That RFID and the technology behind it, they're planning on using that for other things or licensing it to other people or groups or whatever. And here's why I say that. At about the same time that they introduced the uh, My Magic Band, Disney introduced another patent that um, is for airport screening. And essentially what it is you would stand off to the side and get this special cart, and you would put all of your your bag, your personal electronics, whatever other things you've got, into this cart, and then you would push the cart into a uh, into a screening device, uh, you know, your your X-ray machine, essentially your your MRI machine, and it would do the scanning of your of all your stuff, right? So instead of you you jumping into line and then going up there and taking out these little uh, baskets and putting your stuff in those baskets and then pushing them through the conveyor. Disney is trying to make it so your stuff, your personal items, would then be in one cart and then could be pushed through and you, then you could walk through the scanner yourself. Why would Disney do that? Because Disney sees an opportunity to expand its reach into other areas. Now, would you ever know that it's a Disney patent? Who knows? They might not brand it and they may not put any uh, logos on it or anything. This may just be something that Disney does because they, uh, they're interested in getting into other areas. 
but it does lend itself to the concept that Disney is probably looking to work into other areas. And My Magic probably is much broader than just the theme parks. You know, if you consider that it's really for Walt Disney World and you kind of go, wait, then it's not for everybody, then it must be something a little bit more than what they have stated publicly. Just my opinion, of course, but that's just something I've noticed. Now, something else I've noticed as I kind of look through this, uh, this concept and researched it some more, did you know that Disney has a lot of subsidiaries uh, or different companies that they fund in different ways to kind of help them to do their, um, their innovation? For example, there's a company called Steamboat Ventures, and Steamboat Ventures, obviously named after Steamboat uh, Willie, right, uh, is a company that goes out and looks for different business ventures to invest in. Uh, so Disney has some money set aside for investing into technologies and things that they think are appropriate that they think they can um, they can win on in some way and they'll get some return on that investment. So they've got this Steamboat Ventures. They've got another uh, company called uh, Touche Technologies, and it's a it's to look at uh, some of the innovative touch technologies primarily. That's why it's Touche. It's touchy. Um, they have the uh, the different things that they're looking at and they're uh, investing in and they're trying to see what these technologies can do. And it's really kind of interesting some of the things that they've been working on, um, some of which you've seen other places, some of which are related to things that you've seen, some in Disney, some outside of Disney. So it kind of gives you a little perspective. And then, of course, there's the Disney research uh, group that goes off and looks at you know emerging technologies and tries to figure out how they can best use them or leverage them or come up with their own uh, spin on them that they can patent. So it really does give you a perspective on what Disney is doing that maybe is not directly theme park related, but at least outwardly it seems that way. So you get the experience and you get something better, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's something that's going to be uh, related directly to the theme parks in Disney's terms. Yes, maybe they get a benefit from it, but it does explain why they're willing to spend this kind of money on it uh, in any case. Kind of giving a little more perspective, I found an article um, from qualitylogoproducts.com. It's uh, from Rachel Hamsmith, and it's called Branding Lessons from Walt Disney World Part 1, Designing the Customer Experience. Now, why I find this interesting is because Disney doesn't produce this information themselves. They don't talk about the branding experience, but, you know, other people do. So I thought it was worth spending a minute and talking about this and kind of how it all fits together. Um, She starts off, last year during one of my family's many trips to the Walt Disney World Resort in Florida, my dad and I took a behind-the-scenes tour of the Magic Kingdom called Keys to the Kingdom Tour. Besides exploring the utility tunnels that weave beneath the Magic Kingdom, viewing Splash Mountain from behind, and entering the Haunted Mansion through the employee-only corridor, which is just as creepy as the richly detailed in every other inch of that uh, ride, I learned a great deal about how the Magic Kingdom was designed with customers in mind. Many months later, I encountered a business article that though not about Disney, seemed to fit the branding and design techniques I got a glimpse of during my Magic Kingdom tour. With those articles in mind, two takeaways from my Disney trip stood out to me most. Number one, don't underestimate the importance of designing the customer experience. Don't just expect your customers to visit your stores and use your products. Instead, actively design their experience so that you have some control over their perception and your brand. Now, Disney World, a different kind of theme park, at its core is a theme park you'd probably expect the script to include thrill rides, lots of walking and standing in lines, overpriced food, and the heat of summer. The Disney script is very recognizable as a theme park, but the company also twists the expectations and has designed the place as something more, an entire world of fun and escapism. So, a couple of things that she notes that they do, draw the consumer's eye to the main event, and keep the behind-the-scenes work behind the scenes. So the utilidors, the actual uh, roadways behind the buildings and so forth are all kept out of customer view so that uh, you, can, you can get more out of it. 
so she says, how do they do it? Well, you think about some of the things like Apple stores and the way that they keep their stores pristine and clean. Starbucks coffee shop uh, extends to the cozy design of the stores as well as the pseudo-Italian names of its drinks. Um, how does that give them an edge in the industry? So she talks about that a little bit. And then um, take your cues from theater and cinema. That's her second point. Uh, theater and cinema are all about creating worlds for an audience. And if Disney World is about anything, it's about immersing its customers in the varied fantasy worlds of the theme park, an element very important to the brand's script. Paul Valerio of the design firm Method compares it to a customer's first brand experience to the overture of a musical or the opening sequence of a film. An overture sets the tone. A sampling of various upcoming songs gives the audience the sense of mood and structure, and, and the production priming an audience members comes next. You know, so they put up the big signs that say, here come Disney World. Let's get excited. Uh, as you walk into the, the Magic Kingdom, the railroad station hides the uh, castle from view. They thoughtfully design the entrance so that you, the company's physical and virtual storefront becomes what you see first. And they invest employees in the idea. Disney reinforces the theater idea among all, this, all of its employees called cast members. Everyone wears a costume. Um, Disney strictly enforces the cast members stay in character while on stage. That's in the theme parks and when they're out there. So kind of an interesting thing, right, when you think about it. You know, and we all know this. Um, we're all Disney fans. We kind of knew this. But it, it puts it in perspective. Why does Disney do this? Because they want to make sure that their brand stays perfect and that they can give the experience to the guests even before they get in the get in the car or get on the plane to come down here you've already had part of your experience by going onto the my magic website and building a little bit of the hype and getting the brand going so when you get there it's really exciting right you've already got the excitement built and then on a related note i found a an article about hilton hotels and the uh it was uh, written by hilton itself and it was brand differentiation through customer relationship management Sound familiar? <laughs> so in 2008, Hilton Hotels Corporation was poised for tremendous global growth with an aggressive goal of opening 1,000 hotels in North America in five years and 1,000 in the rest of the world in 10 years. The company had just been taken private by the Blackstone Group. Now, just remember, Blackstone also used to own Universal. So it kind of gives you a little you know, thought around how it all works, right? Because Blackstone used to, used to run that company. So, you know, here's Hilton and they're related and they're in a related industry anyway. So kind of think about it. So uh, the company had just take, been taken uh, private for a reported $26 billion. That's a 32% premium over the $32 uh, a share the day prior to the announcement. So, you know, think about how much, you know, Disney stock is worth and could Disney be the, um, the object of a takeover? So if Disney looks, you know, wants to maintain its its own operating um, methods and wants to do things themselves and be part of the Walt Disney Company, you know, this may be one way to do it. Or if you want to prime yourself for a sale, this may be one way to do it as well. So, you know, you can kind of, kind of think about it both ways. But Disney is protecting its, itself in, in either case. The CRM area, that customer relationship management, was one of the hardest returns on investments. It's an impossible thing to measure, according to Hilton, and I would agree just based on some of the things I know. So Hilton saw an opportunity to improve on its uh, own internal uh, measures on how uh, customer re relationship management would work. So they set about doing this um, over time. They could work on their own internal measures and come up with things that were better. So um, one of the uh, key people involved in the study said, we need to scale and breadth the first, uh, to be the first choice of the world's traveler. We want a, enough distinct products at different price points in order to be considered by guests across the uh, full spectrum of segments and reasons for traveling. The Hilton Cor Hotels Corporation defined itself as a brand management company devoted to taking excellent care of its guests who collectively took over 50 million trips. 
accounting for over 100 million uh, room nights in the United States each year. And that's really where it all comes from. They wanted to um, drive profitability and make sure that they, their guests were having a good experience. They looked to uh, maintain and refresh property-level hardware, um, providing a complete turnkey solutions for each one of their properties to make sure that they looked right. And our owners like the uh, simplicity of the single program and feel that the fact that we aligned all our goals um, really helped uh, to maintain that, that brand. Remember that these are all hotels that are independent and they're away from the uh, corporate headquarters. And while they're all uh, maintained similarly and run similarly and look similar, they're all disparate. And, you know, different measures that you could put in place for one hotel may not work in another. So they found a way to kind of work it out. They enabled the firm to open up uh, more hotels at a quicker pace with more co uh, consistency of delivering than, otherwise, than would have otherwise been possible. For you to know 100% of your customers so that you can provide the most outstanding service, all the technology components need to work seamlessly together. Our IT infrastructure is a competitive advantage. It would take years for others to replicate it. Our branded sites look different, but they operate the same way. And they generated $750 million in cross-selling last year and can sit in the office and see how everyone did last night. So they really built a database to help them to manage all of this stuff to see what's actually happening when they when uh, people make reservations, when people send feedback, when people are staying at the hotel, so they can look at a granular level at how well their brand is doing. And I think this is really where Disney steps in and does the same thing. They're looking at the similar types of concepts. How could we make a better animal and understand our, our customers better so that we can tweak the profitability at the bottom line? And I really think this is kind of the, the impetus for that, for what Disney is trying to do. They worked on something called the Customers Really Matter Initiative. They captured the, uh, the customer relationship management piece of it to really understand what customers were doing, uh, both at the hotel level, on the website, and so forth, so they could really get information about the customers. At every one of our customer touch points, there were barriers to good service because information was not integrated and easily available. So by integrating it, they were able to get more out of it. So anyway, that would be my take on how that fits together. I, I just find it interesting that Hilton took the time to do it, really think about how to differentiate its customer experience, and I have to believe that Disney was paying attention. Now, as I researched this, there was a couple of other things that came up. Disney's mission statement back in the early days of Walt Disney World was make people happy. Very simple, understandable, and easy to measure. People come out of your park happy, they're happy. Now, Disney has evolved its mission statement over the years, and currently it reads... To be one of the world's leading producers and providers of entertainment and information, using our portfolios of brands to differentiate our content, services, and customer products, we seek to develop the most creative, innovative, and profitable entertainment experience and related products in the world. That's a mouthful. That's a lot more of a statement than um, make people happy. And I think it's, it's hard to measure, to be honest with you. And it kind of shows that Disney is in a whole other place about being an entertainment giant, not just about theme parks and making people happy. You know, Walt Disney's vision was always to make sure that people had something to do and somewhere to go and, you know, to have a little fun. That's not what it's about now. This is about being profitable and, and uh, finding a way to make money. So if you look at that mission statement and you kind of put that in perspective of what they're doing, it makes a little bit of sense, right? Um, now... A couple of, you know, couple of things that are going on that I think kind of fit in here. Right now, Disney has set it up where there's um, the limited, limited FastPass Pluses available. So as you use the MyMagic experience, you, you're limited to three per day and one park. So if you're you know, doing, planning on doing some park hopping, you can't use the MyMagic experience that way currently. And it's true of any hotel you stay in, whether you stay in a value resort, a moderate resort, a deluxe resort, or even in the D Disney Vacation Club property. 
Now, I would argue, stay tuned to that, because I suspect it's going to be different. I would bet that the Disney Vacation Club property owners will probably have more exposure and more access to the My Magic Plus, and the people staying at the value resorts will have less. So, And I'm thinking maybe like the, um, the uh, Disney Vacation Club might have as many as five, and the people staying at the, uh, the value resorts may have two, let's say, um, or something along those lines where it would modify and uh, change. But that's just my guess. Also... One of, the, one of the benefits that comes from having the, uh, the wristbands is that you can route buses differently. So right now, the buses run on a 20-minute cycle to each one of the resorts, but there are more people staying at some resorts than other resorts. They never want the people of the vacation clubs to wait the full 20 minutes. They have a couple of extra buses on the routes there to make sure that, that, that they take care of the people that are at the vacation club properties. But how do you know where people are? How do you know people are queued up at a particular bus terminal? Well, now with the, with the uh, My Magic Band, you have it on. You're sitting at the bus terminal. There's a trigger that goes off and says, "Hey, there's people sitting at this bus station over at the All Star Resorts." So they'll route, maybe dispatch another bus over there. Similarly, at the Vacation Club property, if you have several people congregated and they're waiting for a bus, you might dispatch another bus out there. And you know which one of the bus terminals they're at, whether they're waiting to go to the Magic Kingdom or Epcot. So you can route buses differently and take advantage of the fact that you can make sure that there's no queues waiting for buses to get people in. When you're sitting at a bus terminal and waiting, you're getting frustrated and you're not spending money. So there's an opportunity for Disney to improve that experience and get people out there. And, of course, the um, differentiation also comes from sending people to, to experiences that they think would be beneficial and making sure that those people get there based on potentially how much they paid. If you're a vacation club owner, you're more likely to get an experience that's a higher-end experience, and maybe um, people that stay at the value resorts or off-property won't get that experience. You know, and then there's the, uh, the controlling access to certain things. So we've talked, I talked previously about how the pools are now putting up, um, uh, like, entry gates, um, and they're ostensibly saying that it's to protect their guests from getting hurt. And, you know, you'll hear more from me about guest safety in the future, but there's, you know, that's part of it. But I think the other part of it is to restrict access. People can't pool hop if they, you know, if they have the wristband on, I can tell if you belong at that resort or not. Also, the things like the uh, fireworks viewing up at the Bay Lake Towers. How do you keep people from going up there that aren't staying at the Bay Lake Towers? Maybe they're staying at the Contemporary, but they're not staying at the Bay Lake Towers, but they're wandering over and they're going up and seeing the fireworks from up there. You know, and they're taking essentially a seat. I know it's not seating areas, but they're taking a seat from someone who's, uh, who's staying at the Bay Lake Towers. Well, you don't want that, so you could control it by just allowing people to get in there based on that. Now, the other thing is, um, I think it levels the playing field. Uh, so as you look at the big picture of how things work right now, people who are locals, like me, um, we take advantage of things and we have, a, uh, we have ways of kind of working around the system. And, and guys who have written things like the touring plan sites like Len, you know, they've come up with ways to help guide people through the parks. And they're charging people whatever the, um, the fee is to be able to, to do this process a little bit more effectively. Uh, Disney wants to level that playing field to make sure that we don't have the unfair advantage because we're not paying for that experience at Disney ourselves. So they're leveling the playing field for themselves and may stack the deck in their favor later um, to make sure that uh, regular guests like me get the advantages kind of taken away and more advantages are given to the Disney Vacation Club members, right? So they kind of change the playing field. They change the landscape a little bit. So I don't have the advantage that I used to have by knowledge of the park because they change the knowledge all the time rather than it always being, hey, I'm going to do this. Let's so let's say, for example, in the Magic Kingdom, uh, most people come in the park and they head off to the right first and they go to uh, Tomorrowland and they work their way around the park that way. 
I always started at the Pirates and worked my way around the other way because that was the most efficient way to work through the park. They've taken that advantage away because they've set it out there now where everyone is actually on a level playing field because more fast passes are given out here and there to make sure that people go at different times to different things. That advantage is gone. So my knowledge of Disney becomes irrelevant to a point because that doesn't work anymore. So they've taken away some of the advantages of being a, uh, uh, you know, a, a local and a, uh, a regular visitor. Now, I also have to look at it like I think the possibility of park hopping being eliminated uh, is probably on the horizon somewhere, or that it would be an extra feature that maybe is only available to certain people. I think what they want is when you have your experience and you go to the parks that you stay in one park, right, and you work your way around that park and you do some things. So, you know, limiting fast passes to three per day for one park, I think, is the first part of that. And then ensuring that the price points on parks is potentially different on different days may also affect that. So the goal is to kind of reduce congestion and make sure that they know how many people are in the park at all times, and then kind of reducing that, uh, that park hopping as, as a possibility, unless potentially you pay for that privilege. Now, as I think about it in the big picture of pros and cons, one of the big pluses for Disney is they extend the magic by planning and dreaming. So you can sit there and look at the website and think about the things you're going to do. You can do it months before your vacation. You can start planning, oh, let's go to this park on this day and that park on that day. You don't have to, certainly, but it does help build the hype. And their ad campaign has certainly gone along with that, too. It's like, oh, there are only so many Disney memories, and it's time for your family to take a vacation. You know, those types of things go along with that, and I think that... um, that kind of goes into the into the feature of it. And I think from Disney's perspective, that's a very good thing. Um, they can take advantage of some services features, et cetera, because you're into it. So you can say, oh, you know, you're you're at this attraction and let's let's give you a fast pass to this or let's offer you a two-for-one discount on ice cream. Um, you know, whatever it's going to be, Disney has the advantage of knowing where you are and offering you things that uh, you can take advantage of at that point in time. The photo pass process, um, before you even leave home, they can add the photo pass to your, to your wristband. You get the wristband in the mail. It comes in a nicely packaged box, and it's exciting, and you, you pack it in your suitcase, and it's like, wow, I know whose is whose and who's getting what and what color it has, and I can sell extra you know, widgets or gibbets or whatever to put on the wristband, or I can make them different colors or certain styles, and that makes them really exciting and also um, potentially boosts the pot- bottom line just a little bit. But that photo pass piece is already tied to your wristband. So you walk in, and all you have to do is just walk by the uh, photographer, and they know who you are, and your, your photos are already stored with your account on your wristband. So you don't need a little photo pass card that you might lose. So now you're just carrying it around. You've got it. Um, you know, how many people are in a certain area? You can always queue up, and, you know, you see, oh, there's a lot of people over in the, over by the Little Mermaid ride. Well, let's, you know, try and get some of those people to come over to Pirates of the Caribbean. How could I do that? Well, if I know that they're over there, I can offer them something to come over here. Hey, New fast passes just became available to, to the pirates. Would you be interested? And you do it via text message or whatever uh, methodology is there. And you can get people to move through the park and have a better experience. And, you know, well, potentially you might have a, a better experience and spend more. Now, the cons. You know, kind of going along with this, I think there's the potential that Disney is going to charge for some of these features or charge more for some of these features. You know, some of them will come standard. Some of them will be uh, available to you. I think the Uber planning the trip, I, for me personally, I hate planning a trip like that where it's day-to-day, minute-to-minute, I already know what I'm going to do. I don't like to do that. I like to be a little bit flexible in how I approach my day. Perhaps you chose to use your MyMagic to go to a water park on a day, and now it turned out to be a rainy day. What do I do? 
do I switch experiences? Do I switch days? What do I do now? My, now my plans have all changed and, you know, I've done the super planning and, you know, that's kind of a problem when you, when you set up the whole process. And that's something I know they're still ironing out and they're still trying to understand to a large degree. There is the possibility that you don't know what you're spending before or during your trip. I bought this experience. I'm staying in a, you know, deluxe resort or a moderate resort. So it cost me X number of dollars and it's a total experience because I'm going to be there for three nights and four days in the park. And I know it's going to include admission for me and my family and uh, it has the dining plan on it and it it had an X dollar cost to it. Well, I didn't really think about what the cost was. I just looked at the bottom line and said, okay, it's a thousand dollars. And I know that's unrealistic, a thousand dollars for that, but let's just say it's a thousand dollars. So it cost me a thousand dollars and that's fine. And then I go off and I uh, maybe I spend some, you know, I go and buy some merchandise and I'm just using my scanner and just doing it. I buy some t-shirts and some hats and some pins and whatever other things that I want. <clears throat> and I don't really know what I'm spending because I'm just hitting my wristband against things, right? And I'm just taking them home with me. And then I get home and I realize, I look at the, look at that and I go, wow, it was a thousand dollars for, you know, four days. You know, that's $250 a day. And there's four of us, you know, so I divide that up and, you know, I realize that I've spent $75 per person per day. And then, oh, look, I spent this much on my you know, t-shirts and hats, I spent, you know, another hundred dollars on that stuff, you know, so I have to figure that in there. And I didn't, re- I didn't think about it from that perspective because I just thought about it as a cost and then didn't think about what was going on. And that's potentially a problem for guests, not so much for Disney, but, uh, you know, we don't understand what the prices are, or what's going on. It's just, uh, it's, it's interesting how you get home and you think about it, you know, perhaps a little buyer's remorse. Yes, you had a great trip and yes, you're going to see the pictures tomorrow, but wait a minute, how much did I spend? And then the other thing is that prime locations continue to disappear for fireworks and parades because many of these are going to be reserved. So you want a great parade viewing location? Well, you can get that with your fast pass or perhaps for one of the upgraded fast passes or something that you do. And, you know, you see all these new locations propping up around Epcot, you know, the, the, um, the new uh, cantina over in uh, Mexico or the new place that they're building over by Morocco. And there's new places popping up and there's fewer and fewer viewing areas where regular guests can just watch the illumination show because they're selling more of these areas as uh, potential places to watch it. And so you get a fast pass for that and that's great. And that's where you're watching it. Hmm. What about the rest of the rest of the guests? Well, you know, they're kind of axed out of the whole process, you know, because they're getting these places reserved. Now here's something else to consider as they start to add more of these fast pass pluses and more people getting into the system, there's fewer and fewer of the fast passes available. So essentially the paper fast passes become irrelevant And eventually, I believe that they will go away completely. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that at some point they go away. And they're replaced with, if you're a day guest and you come in, they'll probably allow you to go to a kiosk and select a couple of experiences. But I imagine that it won't be as convenient as it is today. And some of them will certainly be gone. You won't be able to get a fast pass for, say, Soren or Toy Story Midway Mania. But you will be able to get a fast pass for, you know, It's a Small World, which kind of blows me away. But that's a whole other story. Okay, so here's the other potential downside of using the uh, other FastPass Plus system. Uh, you know, I go in and I make my reservations for a couple of fast passes, you know, a month before I come to the park. And I get there, and one of my fast passes is for Splash Mountain. And I look at it, and I go, wow, there's only a 15-minute wait time for Splash Mountain. Oh, wow, okay, let me change my fast pass. I didn't get Space Mountain, so let me get that. So I go over and I switch my uh, Space Mountain, and I try to switch to Space Mountain. Maybe I do it on my phone or a kiosk or whatever. But I go over and I try to switch it. And I find out that they're out of fast passes. It's not available for the rest of the day. So now I'm stuck with a fast pass for Splash Mountain that I really didn't need because it um, because the wait time was so low. 
And then later in the day, I'm going to go over to Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, and I have a fast pass for that. And I walk over to it, and it's pouring down rain, and they've closed it, or it has a technical problem, and uh, it's not running right now. But my fast pass is only for that one-hour window. Now what? What do I do? How do I overcome that experience? How does Disney help me to overcome that experience? Do I file a a complaint? Does Disney try to do something for me? I don't know. It's an interesting problem. You know, and now... All the people with a 20-minute window for their pre-reserved fast passes are out of luck because they can't use it. So Disney starts giving them – so maybe Disney starts giving them an anytime pass to use when the rain stops, and they all show back up as soon as the uh, rain stops. Now what? You know, what, is that, what does that mean? And what about you know, the, the guests who are walking through the park? I mean, I'm okay with it going back to the experience it used to be where you have to wait in line for the attractions. I mean, I've become accustomed to FastPass, and I like it, and I don't want to change that. But if that's what it becomes, and as a day guest, that's what it becomes for me, I can deal with that. But for the people who are paying more and have this FastPass experience, and we're supposed to have this experience and aren't getting it, then what? Right? What does Disney do to help them? So I have to wonder a little bit about where it all goes. So as I think about the uh, the overall process and what Disney is doing, I, I kind of wonder a little bit, you know, who else is Disney working with on this? Disney certainly is in the mobile payments business, whether they realize it or not. Uh, they are now in that mobile pay- payments business. There's the question of, you know, they know who's in the parks at all times. Disney has always been, you know, interested in knowing who's in the parks, who's coming and who's going. You know, they have spotters out there. They have people checking on, you know, people coming in the parks. They check ID when you purchase your tickets. But, you know, if you had a paper ticket, someone else theoretically could have used it. But now you're tied into having your fingerprint uh, in, the, in a database, and essentially you're agreeing to be photographed at any time in the parks, too. So as you go through the turnstiles, there's nothing that says that you will not be photographed. You know, you're putting your finger on the, on the scanner, and they know who everybody's fingerprint is. They could have a picture, for all you know, of everyone that goes through the turnstiles. So essentially, Disney knows who is in their parks at all times, and they know who's coming through, and they know who's there, and they know how long you're there, and they know what you're doing. So essentially, you become um, a number to Disney. Now, they don't, I don't think they care specifically about who's there and what you're doing, unless perhaps you're someone who has been explicitly banned from the parks, or you're someone on a government watch list for some reason. Right, and you're coming to a Disney park for some reason. Who knows? Maybe you're a fugitive. Whatever. You know, now Disney knows you're there, so they have that information. How do they use it? You know, are they working with other entities and doing other things? Who knows? I certainly don't. And I don't mean to. You know, I'm not trying to say that uh, that they do or they don't. Yeah, I just find the whole thing really interesting and fascinating. And I think the overall the whole process is really something that I didn't anticipate coming. Uh, I didn't see Disney going down this path. You know, I found uh, found a couple of articles out there where people were talking about how they um, they've been able to uh, to take scanners and be able to read uh, the uh, RFID tags and be able to uh, know what's on them. So I found that kind of interesting. I was uh, reading an article here. So the Magic Band has an NXP semiconductor. Um, it's an MIFARE uh, Desfire EV1 tag and appears to have 512 bytes of storage. People have scanned it with uh, NFC enabled phones. Now, none of the information that's printed on the outside of the tag matches any information that's inside the tag. It does have a couple of sections that require encryptions to access. So, is my magic a good or a bad thing? I don't think there's really an easy answer for that. I just wanted to provide some context around what it was, what they're doing, what perhaps they're doing, what they're thinking with it. I don't know that they have the ultimate answer here. But I do believe that this will be a technology they're going to try and leverage for some period of time. Now, whether it'll be successful or not is going to depend on what they do with the technology over time. You know, if it turns people off, I've already talked to a few friends who have said, eh, you know, if it's not going to allow me to use fast passes and it makes visiting the parks a, a different experience, maybe more complicated for me as a, regu- you know, as a frequent guest, then maybe I won't go as often. I won't spend as much money. But then on the other hand, 
Disney may not care because, you know, we're people who go in there and we don't spend as much money as somebody on a vacation that's actually there, you know, staying at the resorts and so forth. So in some ways, I think they're happy to get rid of Florida residents out of the parks, you know, to some degree. I think they still want want to have people coming in the parks. I'll be continuing to watch the technology because I'm really interested to see what what they do with it and how it all comes together. I think it's really, there's some interesting things in here, you know, both good and bad that Disney is doing that I think really make for some interesting thoughts around it. And I'm going to continue to watch it and and I will continue to report on it as I see things that I think are worth reporting. But I hope I gave you an overview, a little context around what this is, some goods, some potential bads, without overly saying that I don't like it or I do like it. I mean, personally, I'm not a fan. I don't think it's that great. I, I think there's some some gaps in the whole thing, and I, I, I'm not sure what Disney is going to use it for. I'm still not sure what the direct benefit is, but I suppose there is one. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this. Like I said, I think that there's a benefit beyond just the parks, and I really think that's what Disney's doing. So that's my take on it. Now, do I love it? No. But can I live with it? Potentially. We'll have to see how it all comes together. Some people absolutely love it and think it's the greatest thing since life's bread. So we'll see what everybody thinks. But that's it for now. I hope you enjoyed my double podcast this week uh, to give you some context around my magic and what it's all about. So remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. This is episodes number 156 and 157. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. Now, please exit the moving podcast. The walkway is moving at the same speed as your podcast. Kindly take small children by the hand and watch your head and step. If you have questions, thoughts, or would just like to ask Dave a question, please send an email to davesdisneyview at gmail.com. You can always find Dave's Disney View on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Show notes for this podcast can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound A Music. You'll find a link to the latest Disney-related autism awareness event on the show notes page. We also encourage you to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There are a couple of Disney-related apps, including a hidden Mickey's app and a pin trading app.